Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and he went about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as, I, as, as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, would you please grant us by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would shine your light both on this text and in our heart. That we could see clearly the word that you have for us and that we would apply it to our lives as each of our individual circumstances demands. I pray that you would be glorified by our understanding of your will from this. And praise things in your son's name. Amen. It is a real um, delight and pleasure uh, to be with you all. Becca and I have really enjoyed your extremely gracious hospitality and our time here in South Dakota. Um, so thank you very much for having us. So to the, to the text here, let's just walk through the scenario really quick so we just see what it is exactly that has happened. Um, a number of workers are sent out into the vineyard, and in verse 2, we see that they agree that they will work the whole day for a denarius. He had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day. He sent them out into his vineyard. So he's got a bunch of people that, that go out into the vineyard to work through for the day, and you're going to notice that he actually makes two different contracts. The first contract is the agreement. Go on out, I'm going to pay you one denarius for one day's work. And they agree, and they head on out. But other workers are hired later on at various intervals throughout the rest of the day, at the third, the sixth, and the ninth, and the eleventh hour. And they are sent into the vineyard, but they're given a bit of a different contract. Each of the workers in the later groups is promised that they will be paid Whatever is right. You see that in verse 4, verse 7. What, whatever is right is what I'll pay you. So the first workers were promised one denarius for a day's work. And everybody after that, who apparently are going to be working shorter intervals of working, they're told, I'm going to pay you whatever's right. So it's not specified to them. Theirs is still an ambiguous number. It's going to be whatever is right. Then at the end of the day, the workers come to be paid, beginning with the last that started to work. Okay, the, the 11th hour guys, they're the first ones that come to be paid. This is verses 8 through 10. They start coming in. And, and, and as he works through them all, everybody gets one denarius. And he gets to the guys who started at the beginning of the day. The, the first crew of workers, um, turns out that they're going to be paid 
exactly what they had been promised, okay? They, they were told, I will pay you a denarius. They work the day for a denarius. He gives them a denarius. They're paid exactly what they were promised, exactly what was in the contract. But what happens is these workers who worked um, the whole day that agreed to work for denarius, they, they get their denarius, and when they receive it, they look to the left, they look to the right, and rather than looking at the contract and the deal that they had, they begin evaluating what they received relative to what everybody else got. Okay, they're not looking at what they were promised. They're looking at their situation in comparison to the people to the left and to the right. They're paid exactly what they've been promised, but they begin to complain as they cast what I would describe as a sidelong glance. That, that, that moment where you start to look to the side and compare what you're getting to what other people are getting. That sidelong glance, looking at what other people receive, comparing it to yourself, and starting to complain about your own circumstances. They cast a sidelong glance and they see how others are being treated. It seemed like, with respect to the others, they ought to get more. They had worked longer. Shouldn't they get paid more? But the owner takes them back to their original agreement, verse 13, and he says, I am doing you no wrong. I'm doing you no wrong. I'm paying you exactly what I promised you. So why was it they thought they were being wronged? Well, if, if you evaluate the situation according to the horizontal subjective standard, if you evaluate their situation by comparing them to the other people, they are being wronged, aren't they? subjectively evaluated by looking left and right. They actually are being wronged. Um, and, and I think, and here's the thing, um, when we read Jesus' parables, a lot of times we feel like we're in sort of Jesus' truth land, where you just nod, it's another truism, stop for the, you know, if, if the Good Samaritan stops for the guy on the side of the road, and, and there are these things that we just think they're, they're sort of little nice truisms, but a lot of times we don't let the word really go deep and show us how outrageous the things that Jesus is saying really are, because it really is outrageous. I mean, so, so um, imagine, you know, re, um, recast this story for a moment into your own job. And let's say the place of work where you've worked for the last 10 years, and you have a standard salary and a standard position, and one day you're in your boss's office and you happen to see one of your coworkers' contracts on the desk open, and you suddenly see his salary is twice yours. And, and let's say he's only worked here uh, four years compared to your 10. Let's say his position is in no way superior to yours. He's, he's got a very comparable set of duties and everything, and you see that his salary is double yours. Do you not walk out sick to your stomach? <laughs> Do you not walk out wrestling with something? Where, and, and somebody could say, look, here's your contract. This is what you agreed to. And you say, yeah, but look at what he's getting. Would that not just absolutely outrage you? Wouldn't you feel like a, a great and terrible injustice is being done? Um, this would be really, really hard to stomach, I think. Compared... Um, the looking across horizontal to one another, if you compare things in that way, this is unfair. But he says, no, no, quit looking left and right, look up, look up, look and, and tell me what was the deal that we made between one another. Objectively, this is the deal that you agreed to. 
according to the vertical objective standard, they were done no wrong. They were paid exactly what they had been promised. And this is the essence of the sidelong glance that catches us. And, and I think this is something that is really easy to slip into and really hard for us to see for what it is. It's when you prefer to evaluate your circumstances relatively, that is, comparing yourself to your neighbor, when you prefer to evaluate your circumstances relatively by looking left and right, that sidelong glance and saying, she gets more than me, he has more than me, and you evaluate your circumstances that way rather than when you evaluate your, stance, your circumstances objectively, that is, looking straight up to God, with your eyes to God. And when you, when you do this, when you cast that sidelong glance, what happens is your own contentment becomes dependent on your position relative to your neighbor. Your contentment is always being um, jostled by what your position is relative to your neighbor. You know, you, could, you see this with your kids. You know, you, you're, um, you can serve them a piece of pie and they're just glorious. This is, this is wonderful. Dessert, it's incredible. And then all of a sudden, their brother next to him gets a piece of pie and it's like a quarter inch wider. And you just have ruined it. You've destroyed this moment. And it's funny because if you could put like a little curtain around them so all they could see is their piece of pie, life is wonderful and glorious, but the curtain comes up and, and there's a quarter inch, there's like three quarters of an inch fatter, you've destroyed it. And so, so now your contentment is dependent upon your circumstances rather than on your objective relationship with God. And when this sin appears, it almost always comes in the form of the sensation of things being unfair unfair, unjust, unfair. My job is unfair. Why? Other people are paid more, promoted, recognized. It's not fair what's happening to me at work. Uh, my home life is unfair. My wife doesn't care for me like other men's wives do. My husband doesn't provide for me physically, emotionally, or spiritually like others. Or uh, that's, you all get to make that complaint, I'm not married, I don't have a husband, I don't have a wife, I don't get what you have. Everyone else gets to be married, but here I am all alone. It's not fair. Uh, my parents are embarrassing me. My children are embarrassing me. We, we have all of these different complaints where we're comparing our lot in life, our circumstances, to everybody else. My lot in life is unfair. My physical appearance, my brains, my skills, my athleticism, my wit, it's all unfair, and it's unfair because I look left, I look right, and I see other people getting what I wish that I had, and I immediately conclude that I am being done a great uh, injustice. I'm not getting what is owed to me. Um, we do this with other people's um, friendships. You, know, you notice this. Um, I, I see a bunch of people over here with deep, uh, meaningful friendships with one another that I don't have. And what's weird is that when I see that, I see somebody else who has this like really um, meaningful friendship and I don't have anybody like that. And what's weird is how I conclude that because this is a situation, they are wronging me, right? They, they are wronging me because they have this and I don't have that. And it's this great injustice that is being done to me. I see a bunch of people with these friendships with one another. I don't have friends like that. So I'm being wronged. They're being cliquish. Um, and, and you'll see that well, we can do this to churches sometimes, where, where we'll have churches where um, you feel like 
that church, they have deep friendships that I'm not a part of, and so that whole congregation has sometime, somehow wronged me. Or um, parents, we do this on behalf of our kids uh, all the time. Uh, my kid comes home from school, looks lonely. It's because the kids at school are all evil because apparently there's some um, debt that they all owe to my child to invite them into their friendships, right? And so we'll, we'll have this, this kind of grudge against the world uh, because these things we feel like were supposed to be ours. Uh, we do this all the time whenever we're feeling fussy about our lot in life, but it's a purely subjective fussing. That's the thing I want you to realize. It's a sidelong glance. It's, um, and, and it's not only that, it's preferring um, the most negative relative evaluation out of all possible comparisons. What I, what I mean by that is that I'm completely oblivious to all the people that don't have it as good as I have it. Right? I, I only, like when I do this left-right comparison thing, I only notice the people that have things I don't have. I don't notice all the people that, that are missing what I have. And, and so we, we just sort of select out targets where it's like, ah, that over there, what they have, that belonged to me, right? That belonged to me. But I miss all the people who could just as easily be um, coveting what I have. I think my, my father-in-law pointed this out once where, th think for a moment, um, the, all of the technology that is represented in this little device. And if you were to go back um, a few hundred years to Napoleon and say, and, and offer everything that is here, what is the weather today in Cairo? You know, what, what would it have taken for Napoleon to, like, you'd have to send somebody in a ship and, and run out and they'd bring back a scroll. Well, three weeks ago it was. Um, there, there's so much that I have just in this little phone that, that would have taken a million servants just a couple hundred years ago, and I have it all right here. Um, I have more wealth than Napoleon, right? I, ha I have more at my fingertips than the greatest emperors in the world, and yet I can just sit and fuss about, yeah, but it's old, right? It's slow. It's, it's not taking a charge very well. Um, and, and I can sit and I, I can legitimately get upset and grumpy and fussy that my greatest treasure that the world has seen in um, how many thousands of years is um, struggling to get updated, you know? And, and so, so I look across all of humanity and you see how I just pick these, rel these rare little moments and like that over there, that's what I'm owed. And I don't see the incredible blessing that God has poured out on me. And it can become such an all-consuming vice that we find that we can have no satisfaction in the blessings that have been poured onto us, um, but we actually evaluate our own lot based on how much we're currently inspiring this kind of discontent in others. So, so you'll notice this, that we'll start looking left and right um, to see how many people are kind of jealous of us in, in this way. Like how many people have I inspired this kind of jealousy in? We look to the left and right to see how many other people are looking sideways at us. So how many social media posts could be most accurately filed under the heading of, please uh, envy me for my domesticity, my marriage, my pious reflections, the quality of my quiet times, etc. Where we do these things in order to convince other people that they ought to wish they were us, right? Um, there's a great quote from that hideous strength. Lewis says, um, 
to desire the desiring of her own beauty is the vanity of Lilith, but to desire the enjoying of her own beauty is the obedience of Eve. I'll, I'll say it again, Lilith is the bad character here, just so you catch that. To desire the desiring of her own beauty is the vanity of Lilith, but to desire the enjoying of her own beauty is the obedience of Eve. Obedience is enjoying what God has given you. The disobedience, the envy, the jealousy comes when we, when we want to inspire this envy in other people. So my argument to you is that envy and these envious thoughts that get into us are, they, this is the trick, is that they're petty. They're, they're silly little things that get in your heart. Most of the times when this sort of thing would creep into my heart, it's so stupid and so small that it's embarrassing to even say it out loud, even to yourself, to admit to yourself that you have been caught up in this stupid little covetous thing. And, and because it feels like such a childish kind of sin. Like, like I mean, when, you, when I tell the joke of the pie slice, we all know that that's something that a child could struggle with problem is I still struggle with it in my 40s. I can see a pie slice that's a quarter inch, you know, um, thicker over there, and it still gets me. And, and, it's, and it seems so childish, it seems so small and so petty that, that it sneaks in without us wanting to name it. 1 Timothy 5.24, Paul says this, some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. There are some sins that just right out in front. You know, the guy, um, you know, he's on his way to the Hells Angel biker gang. He's, um, the cocaine and the bar fights are just kind of all flying off of him. It's like, okay, I kind of know what's going on with him spiritually. You, You can see it. There are some sins that are loud and out front, but there are some sins that follow later, that are quieter. They, they just sort of build up like sand over time slowly blowing into your house and just building up and building up. And they're so small that we, it's hard for us to identify them or it's hard for us to dignify them with our own confession, right? But it builds up. It builds up just like his cocaine habit, this little envy habit. It builds up and it starts to turn you sour over time. I think this is... Um, well. These are the small, quiet sins. I, I describe it as the petty poison. So small and quiet and so, so stinking petty that you yourself have a hard time even conceding that it has happened. Proverbs 14.30 A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Envy is rottenness to the bones. Envy, this, this sidelong glance I'm describing, when we cultivate it in our life, it's like you're giving yourself bone cancer. right? It's this, this rottenness in your bones that's weakening you on the inside over time, over a long period of time. Once this poison gets into your system, it destroys. Uh, and I think this is usually what happens when there's someone, you know how when you see somebody who, they were a friend, but over time they become somebody that you just can't stand? And, and if you ask, if somebody asks you to give a description of why is it that you can't stand them, you would just kind of go, Ugh. you know, I, 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 can't, I can't put it into words, it's just, Ugh. look at them. You see, what, you see why? Just, eh. Um, there, there, there are times where somebody can become someone in your life where you just, they drive you nuts. And you couldn't put a finger on it. You couldn't say, well, it's because of this. It's just something about them drives you nuts. A lot of times, it's not anything in them. 
It's weird, a weird sort of um, lack of dealing with your own uh, envy, your own jealousy, your own bitter thoughts that pile up on the inside that you aren't confessing. James 3.16 says this, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. I think it's really interesting. He says, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Envy brings about confusion. Have you ever get in that place where you're just sitting there going, I'm so um, spiritually down. I'm, I'm frustrated. I feel sick on the inside. And somebody asks me why, you say, I don't know. I can't explain it. I don't, I don't see it. Well, envy brings about confusion. It's really hard to identify it yourself because you're, you're looking at other people thinking the problem is them, but the problem is actually you. So you don't identify it yourself. You get confused and you feel sick on the inside. Your soul feels sick, but you can't, you can't put a finger on it. You can't deal with it. Envy brings about confusion, and I think it brings about confusion because you find yourself deeply discontent with life while having no clear and obvious explanation for your discontent. And what happens is you start to blame everything else in your life. And this petty poison, it builds up over time and it absolutely destroys the body of Christ in sad, sad ways. As I said before, you know, you, you, there are some sins where it's like that sin out of nowhere just takes somebody out. It destroys somebody. There are some sins that just explode. But some, some sins that just slowly build. And this is why I think churches can have um, a hard time. You can hold the congregation together over 18 months. But what's really, really, really difficult is holding a congregation together for 15, 20, and 30 years where the same people can enjoy fellowshipping with one another for a long period of time. That's really, really rare. It's always, you know, 12 years, 15 years, something gets you sideways and you feel like you just can't be with those people anymore. The work that it takes to actually confess that and deal with it is really, it, it takes something special. So is, this is something that builds up. Marriages, friendships, careers all get poisoned this way unless you know how to combat the sidelong glance. So how do you, how do you fight the sin? What do you, I, I think I've laid it all out maybe in this sort of depressing way. Like you see this sort of bone cancer. So, so what, do you, what do you do with that? Well, let me, let me walk through a few ways that I think that we can cultivate a, a, um, a way to identify this and to fight it. The first, and I think this is the, the primary thing. The first thing is, and, and this is what the workers missed here. Remember that grace is grace. Grace is grace. Um, grace is God giving you what you didn't deserve. Grace is God, is God saying, you earned this, let me give you something different. Um, because, because think about for a moment, the person who stands before God, if, if you ever catch yourself standing in front of God and saying, God, would you please give me what I deserve? Right? That's a really dangerous demand. And when we get in this little envious, envious mood, that's what we're doing. We're standing in front of God and we're saying, that's not fair. Give me fair. Give me fair. Give me justice. Give me what I deserve. That's a terrifying demand to make of God. Paul tells us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. The thing that we deserve, if we, if we said, 
God, would you give me what I deserve? What we would receive, each one of us, would be death and hell. Right? That's, that's what we have deserved. Um, but the glory of the gospel is God coming in and saying, I'm going to give you something different. I'm going to give you what you didn't deserve. I'm going to give you grace. We truly have amazing grace. When we get bitter over someone else's gift, we are lying about the kindness of God to us. When, 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 we, when I get fussy about what he has, all right, and, I start, and my heart gets sick about what he has, what I do not have, I am lying about the kindness of God to me and all the blessings that he's poured out in my life. So the second thing is just the, the old-fashioned art of the confession of sin. All right, this, this is a sin that builds up, so what you want to do is go through and sweep. The, the sand blows in, go and sweep. And it's just the diligent daily dealing with those um, thoughts of discontent. Develop the, the habit of regular confession of sin. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess, he sweeps. He sweeps and he keeps the house clean. And, and, you, and, and it just takes that daily sort of brutal discipline of identifying those petty little stupid things in your own heart and saying it. Just saying to God, I got jealous because even though I'm a grown man and all the blessings you've given me, I still got jealous because he has a newer iPhone. And I just need to say it. And, and, and it's, it's, it's humbling and it's ridiculous Sin is always stupid. You know, there's nothing new about that. You, you confess it, you say it, and then you suddenly see God sweep because he promises to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He sweeps your house clean. As John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You, you want to daily get up knowing that today I'm going to make some sin die. I'm, I'm going to stomp on some stuff by just confessing and dealing with it. Be brutally honest with yourself. What are you fussing about? What is eating you? Who can you st- not stand to hear from? Nothing is too petty to be addressed. Confess it, get rid of it, and don't let the cancer grow. And when you find yourself saying, it's not fair, that's one of those things you want to set like a little, I don't know, can you do like a Google Alerts sort of thing in your own heart? Like when you hear in your soul the words, that's not fair, starting to come out. When you hear that, you want a little alert to go off for you to say, hold on, all right, do you really mean that? Do you really, really think that? Um, when you find yourself saying it's not fair, ask yourself for a verse to back it up. Give me some scripture to, to make this argument that this is all going wrong. What was owed to you in this situation such that you are really being wronged? If you can't produce the verse, then confess your sin and just deal with it. You may have to confess the same stupid thought a thousand times in one day. And that's the weird thing. You confess it, put it all right, 15 seconds later, boom, it comes in again. Confess it again. And just keep doing that until you find it gone, but don't let the poison build. Third thing, remember that we're not currently in the resurrection it's kind of, it's something that sometimes I think we just get confused on. And what I mean by that is your current circumstances are not your final inheritance. This is not where God is taking you. God is taking you somewhere else. Your current circumstances are not your final inheritance. Um, think about Christ's parable with the talents in Matthew 25. Everybody gets different talents, right? 
And your job is not so much to compare whether I got one talent or five talents. Your job is to take that talent and invest it. Okay? And then the inheritance comes after. When you've, done, when you've done your investing, that's the inheritance that comes after. Each of you has been given a different set of talents. You, you've been given a different assignment in life. And, and you, you're all put in a different position, right? The inheritance comes when we see how you played your position, when we see how you handled your investments. So your neighbor was given perfect complexion and a rich orthodontist for a father. But you have foot fungus problems, and your dad has a paper route, okay? You're, you're put in different circumstances. You are, but the circumstances are not the comparison. It's what you do with your circumstances. And then lastly, learn to live your life with an upward glance, not a sidelong glance. I mean, if a sidelong glance is the problem, then the upward glance is the solution. That's how you get out of it. Learn to live your life with an upward glance, not a sidelong glance. The problem with the vineyard workers in the parable was that they chose to evaluate their circumstances horizontally rather than vertically. Okay? They were looking this way when they should have been looking just to the owner of the vineyard. Throughout Scripture, we're regularly told to direct our gaze upwards. We lift up, we lift up our hands, we lift up our hearts, we lift up our eyes all to God. We're always being told, lift this up to Him. That's because that's where our gaze is supposed to go. Um, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you are raised with Christ, seek um, that which, those which are above, where Christ is seed, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Okay? Lift your mind up and put your mind on Christ. And when you set your mind on Christ, all of a sudden all the comparisons fall away. They just fall away because your eyes are on him. Hebrews 12.2, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. How do you win a long race? Okay, and, and this is the long race. Not the, how do you handle that brief sin that destroys? I'm talking about the long sin that slowly creeps in. How do you handle winning the long race? How do you handle running the marathon not the 100-yard dash. How do you handle that? You keep your eyes on Christ. Or put it the other way, how do you lose a long race? Begin comparing your situation to that of others. Okay, That's what will destroy you. If you always have to be in front of everybody, you can't pace yourself over the length of the marathon. So it's the upward glance of the heart directing our eyes towards Christ that spares us from the sideways glance of envy. How can, you, how can you be jealous of the extra inch on your neighbor's slice of pie when you are beholding the eternal and infinite treasures that are yours in Jesus Christ? All right, when you're seeing what Christ has for you, these things become so petty and trivial. You see them for what they are. Here's, here's another way coming at it. This is where it's good to have um, your systematic theology sort of work its way into your devotional life. Okay, um, and, and so... Um, Walk with me for a moment on this. Um, well, I'll come out from another direction. As, as a kid, I can remember, you know, I was raised in a Christian family, and as a kid, I can remember being told, you know, Jesus is your best friend. And you can, prayer is, is how you can just always reach out to your best friend, and you can always pray to him. And I, as a little kid, I believed that. I thought that was wonderful. He's my best friend. I pray to him. I tell him everything. 
And, and that was the friendship, that was the relationship I had with him. Until I, re- I can remember one day all of a sudden sitting there and thinking, he's my best friend. I prayed to him. And then looking and seeing somebody else and going, oh, you think he's your best friend? And being like actually kind of like disappointed and feeling like something had just been taken away from me. Like, you know, what, what, what's the deal here? I thought you were my best friend and that doesn't work if you're his best friend also, right? Something, somehow I've been betrayed and something has been taken away from me. But then, in, oh, then take the leap to systematic theology for a moment. When, when we're talking about our doctrine of God, one of the things, um, we, we, we say that God, um, we, de- we describe the simplicity of God, which means that you can't chop God up into, into parts. You can't divide him up. And so, and so um, when God is, um, when, God, when we say God is omnipresent, okay, and meaning he's everywhere. What's crazy about that is because we believe in uh, that God. We believe in divine simplicity. When I say that God is right here, I don't mean one small fraction of Him is right here. I don't mean that God has been rolled out like um, a pie dough across the table, and a piece of Him is right here. We believe that all of God, one hundred percent of Him, is right here. Okay, you can't you can't ever find a little bit of God. Everywhere where God is, all of him is there. And when you realize that, then suddenly it makes this concern I had as a little kid, all, it, it answers it because it, it doesn't ever divide God when, when he's spread out. So when God's attention to me in prayer is 100%, all of him is here. And nothing is taken away from that when he's that for somebody else as well. All of him is everywhere. So God is infinite and um, infinite in his omnipresence. And God's infinitude means that you don't have to compete with others in your personal relationship with God. And, and that's the thing is, is I think we oftentimes feel like, am I, I, that's I think the root of a lot of our jealousy is we feel like somehow what's happening here, well, if something crazy is happening over here, then that's the thing he really cares about. But that's not the way. That's not the way God is. Like, think about this. You you see this in nature. Have you, have you ever thought? Um, you see one of these nature shows where they'll send some submarine to the very bottom of the ocean. And they'll find some you know canal that goes to depths that they've never before gone to. And some submarine will go down there, and they'll sun, they'll see some sea creature, never before discovered, with all kinds of um, biological features that are used nowhere else. And it's something incredible and glorious and you think god you're you're wasting your your talent on this thing that nobody will see or or the sunset in some abandoned landscape that nobody is there for or some and 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 you and you wonder like why are you pouring out that in this place where nobody is seeing it well god is a hundred percent there he's not he's not spread thin he's not wasting himself you know, I, I notice like when I'm when I'm uh, when I'm writing a, a sermon or something like that. A lot of times, I'm thinking, "Ooh, I need to save this. Like, don't don't waste this here. I need to save this." God doesn't worry about that. I have I have to be careful because I am limited in my resources. I get like one or two cool thoughts per year, and I need to I need to like use them carefully and make sure I drop it at the moment that it's going to get maximum impact. God doesn't worry about that. All of him is everywhere. 
His glory is everywhere. And it's never, it's never robbed by lack of attention. It's never robbed because the, uh, the crowd is too small. You know, in, in calculus, I can remember, I remember very little of calculus, but I do remember that infinity divided by two is still infinity, right? You, you, when you divide infinity up, if it's truly infinite, it's no less. It just, it keeps on going. Um, infinity divided by any finite number is still infinity. God is still infinity for you, right? The fact that there are 6 billion, approaching 7 billion people on this planet does not mean that you get one seven billionth of his attention. 100% of him is on you, and you're not fighting for his attention from other people. So, so you don't need to think that in some way your life is less meaningful because your life is not blogged, is not, um, is not followed by everyone else, is not on display in front of the world. Um, your, your story is lived out before God, presented as a sacrifice to Him, and that's enough because it has all of God's infinite attention. And that's why He is worthy of you putting your eyes on Him, because all of Him is focused on you. And you're not competing. You're not jostling. You're not trying to outdo someone else to please Him. I think of at the very end of the Gospel of John, John 21, there's this moment, this is after the resurrection, and you remember um, Jesus is, is there, and, um, and Peter is talking with Jesus, and he sees John off in the distance, and, he, and, he's, and apparently a rumor had gone around that, that John wasn't going to have to die. And, Jesus, and Peter knows what his death is going to be like, and he's told it, and he's got this rumor that John doesn't have to die, and he, and he, and he nudges Jesus and says, why? Why, why, does, why does he get that? Why does he get to not, um, not go through death? Um, Peter knows he's going to have to be martyred. Why does John get that? And, and Jesus replies to him. So this is John chapter 21, verses 21-22. Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Do you see, you see that? He said, I got a plan for him. What is that to you? What does that matter? You put your eyes on me. All right? And that's enough. That's more than enough because it's infinite. You put your eyes on me. Think of the widow who dropped her two mites into the offering box uh, in Luke. Um, the widow, who, she, she drops her mite into the offering box. And it's funny because I think if we were to go on the sidelong glance, you know, if we were to measure on that uh, by, by that metric, she's got to be at the bottom of the list. She's got to be at the very bottom of the list. And yet Jesus, whose eye is on you know, that deep sea channel, whose eye is on that sunset that nobody saw, his eye is on her at that moment. And, and he sees that, and he says, she gave more. She gave more than everybody else. So, so you see, you're, this is not the inheritance. This is just the position that you've been put in. And your job is to play this with your eyes on Christ, with your eyes on Christ, knowing that 100% of him is on you. So the widow who dropped her two mites in the offering box probably didn't have her neighbor's attention, but she had God's. So direct your gaze upwards where it will be infinitely satisfied, not, not sideways where it will only poison you. Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you for the love that you've poured out on our lives through him. We pray that you would, you would fill our eyes, fill our heart, fill our mind with an, a knowledge and an understanding of what you have done for us so that our gaze could be directed completely towards you, knowing that you have a wonderful eternal inheritance for us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.